All of us have things that frustrate us, that aggravate us, that, that get on our nerves. For me, it's the chronic complainers, the maestros of mumbling, the whiners, the grumblers. I can't stand complainers. Maybe it's because I've I've dealt with people pastoring churches for 37 years. Maybe it's because before then I was a pastor's kid and grew up in a church. I don't know. Maybe it's just my personality, but, but I struggle with complainers. Now, before you get defensive, I want you to understand I struggle with all kinds of complainers. I struggle with the armchair quarterback. I struggle with the bleacher ref who has a problem with the calls that are made in ball games. I struggle with the food critic who always has something to complain about at the, re at the restaurant. Maybe it's the food. Maybe it's the service. I, I, I struggle with the traveler who, who always has something to say about the hotel they're staying in or, or the flight that they had. I struggle with all kinds of complainers. Throughout my years, I've heard husbands complain about their wives. And I've heard wives complain about their husbands. I've heard employers complain about their employees, and I've heard employees complain about their employers. And oh yes, I've heard neighbors complain about their neighbors. And yes, church attenders have a tendency to complain. We complain that it's too loud. It's not loud enough. It's too hot. It's too cold. We don't like this song or we don't like that song. We sing that song too much. We complain all the time. When I was younger and my kids were younger and we would go on road trips, they would complain. They would complain about how long the trip was. They would complain that their siblings were aggravating them. You know, he touched me. He's in my space. We complain about everything. But I think most of us have no idea how serious complaining is. How serious to God a grumbling spirit is. This morning, we're going to be going through Exodus 15 through 17. But before we do, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing to a church that, that has all kinds of problems. I mean, they had moral problems, they had spiritual problems, they had relational problems. And yes, this was a church that was divided, divisive, and, and they were complaining. And Paul, writing to this church under the inspiration of God, is also writing to us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 11. I want you to listen to what he says because he's writing this to us. He says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. This reminds us of what we looked at last week. We discovered how they were led by that cloud 
during the day, that pillar of fire at night. And it reminded us that today we are led by the Holy Spirit of God. We were told how they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then it goes on and it says, And all of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Did you get that? That Christ was with them. Christ was traveling with them as they traveled through the wilderness. And then this is where it gets interesting. These things happen as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Now, there's none of us who are here this morning who would not agree that idolatry is wrong. I mean, if, if we commit idolatry, we're breaking the first commandment, the second commandment. We're putting other gods before the one true God. That is a big deal. I mean, if someone who is a part of our church family came in this morning and said, well, I've decided that I'm going to worship Buddha, or I've decided that I'm going to worship some Hindu God, or, or they say, I decided that I'm going to follow the prophet Muhammad. We would have a problem with that. Each of us would. And we would plead with them and warn them. And if they did not turn from that idolatry, we would exercise church discipline on them. We know this is a serious issue. And we know that sexual immorality is a serious issue, isn't it? Sexual immorality breaks the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. The word he uses here is, is describing all kinds, all types of sexual sin. It's not just adultery. It's, it's um, fornication. It's, it's all kinds of sexual sin. And, and again, if someone who was a part of our church family was caught up in sexual sin, we would approach them and we would plead with them and we would warn them to turn from their sin, to repent and, and turn from their evil ways. And if they did not, then I don't think any of us would have a problem in saying we must exercise church discipline. The Bible gives us an example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But then Paul moves into another area that, to be honest, most of us would have a problem with. Listen to what he says. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Now, we understand God's righteous anger against idolatry. We understand God's righteous anger against sexual immorality. But God's righteous anger also fell upon the complainers, the grumblers, the whiners, the murmurers. 
Now, you're probably sitting there like I was this week as I studied this passage, saying to yourself, come on, God. Really? I mean, complaining is one of those things that we know isn't helpful. We know it's a fault. We know we shouldn't do it. But God, really? Putting complaining up there with sexual immorality? Putting complaining up there with idolatry? God, how can you say that? Complaining is a bad habit, absolutely. But a serious sin? And yet we discover here that complaining brought God's judgment upon his people in the wilderness. Not once, but twice. You see, complaining is a big deal to God. It's not just a fault. It's not just a bad habit. It's a sin. And God gave us these stories in the Old Testament in part to warn us so that we shouldn't make the same mistakes they made. And so turn with me now in your Bibles to Exodus 15. Uh, the passage that we are in is we walk through the book of Exodus. And what we're going to discover this morning is in these three chapters, really uh, only two chapters, part of one chapter, a whole chapter, and then part of another chapter. But in these three chapters, God gives us three stories back to back that deal with complaining. Now, why did God do that? Is it because God is trying to show us something that each and every one of us have a tendency to struggle with? And he is warning us that if we continue doing it, the same things that happened to his people in the Old Testament will happen to us today. And so let's recap for just a minute. The Israelites have been delivered out of slavery in the most amazing way. God had brought a series of plagues on the Egyptians. And finally, Pharaoh not only allowed God's people to leave Egypt, he commanded them, get out of Egypt. And so the people marched out of Egypt defiantly. But after a short time, Pharaoh felt like he had made a mistake. And so he assembled his army and off they went in pursuit of the Israelites. They caught up with them at the Red Sea. And God supernaturally, miraculously opened up that sea. And the Israelites walked through on dry ground, every one of them. Walls of water on both sides. The fish and everything else looking at them as they are walking by. As all of them got to the other side of the Red Sea, the Egyptian army went into the sea after them. But God closed up the Red Sea on top of them. And every single Egyptian that went into the sea died in that sea. Not a single one of them survived. And as they watched the bodies of these Egyptian soldiers wash up on shore, the Bible says that they began to sing praises to God for delivering them out of Egypt. They praised his power, and they praised his might, and they praised his glory. And guess what they did? 
They praised him for his power. And so they continued to journey. And the Bible tells us that they journeyed for three days. Now keep that in your mind. They hadn't been journeying for weeks or months or years. They had just left the Red Sea three days ago. And they get to a place where there is water. But as they start drinking the water, the water is bitter. It's not good enough to drink. It's been three days since God opened up the Red Sea and the people marched through. And you know what they did? Did they cry out to God and say, God, you are the all-powerful God. You opened up the Red Sea. Certainly, you could turn this bitter water into sweet springs of water. No, that's not what they did. You know what they did? They complained. Listen to what it says in Exodus 15, verse 24. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink? They said, three days. Three days. Think about it. They hadn't been wandering for months. They hadn't been wandering for weeks. They had been wandering for three days, and now they were thirsty. I mean, I imagine they had some water still with them, but that water had been in their canteens. That water had been in their sacks. They wanted some fresh spring water. And when they went to that spring water thinking that it was going to be good, thinking it was going to be tasty, it was bitter, and they complained. Three days. Now, there's not a one of you in this room, when you think about that, who doesn't think that's ridiculous. I mean, God delivered them out of Egypt through a series of plagues, God brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Man, this God is incredible. It's just been three days. Have they forgotten the power and the majesty of God? But let's be real. How many of us come to church on Sunday morning and we sing, I will sing of your love forever. But then, three days into the week, we start whining. We start complaining. And the truth of the matter is, most often, it doesn't take three days. Oftentimes, we leave church, and before we get out of the parking lot, we're whining, we're complaining, we're bickering about something. God, where are you? God, why did you? God, how could you? And we complain, and we complain. This place was called Mara, which means bitterness. And I think that God not only led them to name this place Mara because the water was bitter, I think God led them to name this place Mara, bitterness, bitter, because our complaining, listen to me, will always produce an offspring over time called bitterness. Did you hear me? If we complain long enough and often enough, our complaining will turn to bitterness. And that bitterness inside of us will eat at us until the author of Hebrews tells us that it will destroy us. You see, bitterness is the offspring of complaining. So listen very carefully. Complaining not dealt with will always turn to bitterness. So what did God do? 
Did God chastise them? Did God destroy them? No. God pointed Moses to a piece of wood and said, throw this wood into the spring. And Moses did, and the water turned fresh. And the people drank and drank and drank the water. And then God made them a promise. I want you to listen to what God said. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands, keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Jehovah Rapha. What God is saying there is this. If you will trust me and obey me, I will take care of you. I will provide you for you. I will protect you. Now, is that saying to us today that if we trust Jesus and obey Jesus, we'll never get sick, we'll never have any needs? No, that's not saying that. But what it is saying is that when we trust God and obey God, he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. In the good times, in the bad times, in the difficult times of life, he will be there with us. And so they leave there, they go to a place that was an oasis. It had springs and palm trees, and, and so they opened up their RVs. They let the kids go swimming in those springs of water. I mean, it was great. It was, it was like this vacation place. So they stayed there for a while, and then God led them back into the wilderness, the wilderness of sin. Now, that doesn't mean the wilderness of, of disobedience. It means the wilderness of the Sinai. God led them back into the wilderness of the Sinai. And while they were there on their journey, they had been traveling for about a month, and all of a sudden they got hungry. Now, to understand, the Bible says here that they had been out of Egypt now for one month. I mean, it's not like years had passed. It's not like the generation that experienced the hand and the power of God was now gone. It had been one month since they had left the land of Egypt through these mighty plagues and amazing miracles, and they began to complain. This is what it says in Exodus 16. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. They were one month out of slavery and they had already forgotten what it was like to be a slave. They said, in Egypt, we had meat to eat. In Egypt, we had bread to eat. Now we're here, and you're trying to starve us to death. They had forgotten about the scars on their backs where they had been beaten as slaves. They had forgotten about their friends who had been murdered as slaves. They had forgotten that they had no freedom. They were pieces of property. You see, we tend to have an idealistic view of our past when we enter into complaining. We compare our present circumstances with this made-up picture of how good it used to be. Don't we do that? I mean, when we look at our past and we look at it compared to our present, especially if we're in a complaining spirit, we talk about how good it used to be. We had pots filled with meat. We had bread to eat. 
Granted, we were beaten night and day. Granted, they tried to kill our kids. Granted, we were slaves. But hey, we had meat to eat. And now it's been a month and we don't have anything to eat. Now, understand they had cattle with them. Lots of cattle. If they really got hungry, they could have killed a cow. They could have butchered it and they could have fed multiple families. But they sat here and they complained that they had nothing to eat. And so you know what God says? God says, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. And that's what God did. God began, first of all, that evening by bringing quail to the land. Quail filled the land. The people could go out and they could just take the quail and pick it up and kill it and cook it. They fried quail. They grilled quail. They baked quail. They blackened quail. They had quail in stew. They ate quail every sort of way because quail filled the ground. The next morning they got up and, and after the dew had evaporated, there was this white stuff on the ground. And they said, what is this? And they called it manna. You know what manna means? What is this? That's what manna means. They said, what is this? And they called it, what is this? Manna. It was, it was bread from heaven. It tasted like honey wafers. I'm thinking, I want some of that manna for our next Lord's Supper, amen? Be a little bit better than that, that dry, stale bread we use, right? And so they had this, this manna from heaven that God had provided for them. Psalm 78 calls manna the food of angels. That's what it calls it. Now, we don't know whether, whether God was just using this as a terminology to describe that it came from heaven or, or whether this is what the angels ate. We don't know, but we know that God said in Psalm 78, this is the food of angels. It goes on in Psalm 78 and it says this, He, God, rained down meat as thick as dust, birds as plentiful as the sand on the seashore, and he gave them all they needed to eat. But he gave them only what they needed to eat. He told them to pick up enough food for, for them and their families for just that one day. And, and then God would provide more the next day and the next day and the next day. And do you know that's what God did for 40 years? God provided manna for them. God told them if you, if you pick up more than you need, it's not going to be good for you. And that's what happened. There were some people that didn't listen to God and they got more than they needed. The next morning it was filled with maggots and it stunk. And that's what happens when we try to hoard things, isn't it? That's what happens when we don't trust God to meet our daily needs. When we try to hoard and do things on our own, our life ends up stinking and it's filled with all kinds of problems. But God didn't just provide manna for them to meet their physical needs. God was providing this manna to meet their spiritual needs. In Deuteronomy 8, it says this. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. 
He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, they live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, God was not only feeding their stomachs by giving them this manna. He was feeding their spirits. He was trying to touch their hearts. And then God told them about the Sabbath. He said, you're to get enough food for each day, and every day you're supposed to do that, six days a week. The sixth day, you're supposed to get enough for that day and the next day, because on the Sabbath, you're to rest. And God said, I'm giving you this day of rest for your benefit. And there were some people, again, that didn't listen to God. On the day before the Sabbath, on Friday, they got food for that day, and on the Sabbath, they got up looking for the manna, and it wasn't there because they didn't listen to God, but God provided their needs. They complained, and what did God do? God gave them quail to eat. He gave them manna to eat. He provided their needs. And so they got packed up again. They moved on, and the Bible says they moved from place to place, and they eventually landed at a place called Rephidim. And when they got there, guess what? There was no water. And you know what they did? Well, they complained. I mean, they've already done it two times in a row, right? It's obvious. They complained. And listen to what it says in Exodus 17. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Over and over again, the people complained. They complained under Pharaoh. They complained at the Red Sea. They complained about their situations. They complained about their leaders. They complained about everything. And yet, God was continually patient with them. God told Moses to take his staff and hit a rock. And when he did, water came springing out of that rock. God met their needs. Wow. Isn't our God good? I mean, he's better than me. And can we be honest? He's better than you too. His people complained and complained and whined and whined. And yet God was patient with them. And we're so thankful for his patience. Because we may read this story and we may think how horrible these people were. And yet you and I are the exact same way. Our circumstances are different. Our problems may change. Our frustrations may come up in different ways. But when they do, just like the Israelites, we complain. But here's what you need to understand about complaining. Their complaining revealed a lack of trust in God. You see, when they complained, the Bible says they weren't complaining against Moses in reality. They were complaining against God. They weren't trusting God to meet their needs. The God who brought the plagues on Egypt. Uh, the God who opened up the Red Sea. Uh, the God who turned bitter water into sweet water. The God who, who covered the ground with quail. The God who rained down manna from heaven. The God who, who touched a rock and brought water out of the rock. That God 
who day in, day out, over and over and over again met their needs, they simply didn't trust him. Maybe that's why the Bible warns us over and over against complaining. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 14, it says, Do everything without complaining and arguing. Now, now, why are we warned so often? What is it that is dangerous about complaining? Can I give you three things and then give you three observations and we're going to be closed? Three reasons complaining is dangerous. First of all, it's infectious. It spreads to other people and it infects other people. Over and over again in this story, we read that the whole community of Israel complained against Moses, complained against God, every one of them. Now, do you think it started that way? No, I don't think it did. I think it started with a group of chronic complainers. And as those chronic complainers complained, their criticisms, their complaints began to spread and infect other people. And before long, everybody was complaining. That's why we need to challenge one another when we hear one another complain as brothers and sisters in Christ. When someone's complaining about something, we need to, in love, call them out. We need to say, stop it. You're not complaining against the government. You're not complaining against your employer. You're not complaining against your neighbor. You're complaining against God because you're not trusting God to meet your needs. It's infectious. Second of all, complaining hardens our heart. I want you to listen to what it says in Psalm 95, verses 8 and 9. The Lord says, don't harden your hearts as Israel did at Meribah, as they did at Massa in the wilderness. For there your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw everything I did. Did you get that? There came this point where God said, you've seen me work over and over and over, and yet you're continuing to complain. And what's happened is this, your hearts have become hardened. Remember us talking about Pharaoh and how Pharaoh hardened his heart? And then over time, to reveal his glory, God hardened Pharaoh's heart? It always starts with us. We harden our hearts. And that's what happened here. Their complaining was evidence of the fact that they had taken their eyes off the Lord and, and they were focusing on their situation. And that's always dangerous. Because when we take our eyes off of the Lord and we focus on our situation, we begin to question the goodness and the greatness of God. But that's not the end. Because you see, they're complaining, their grumbling eventually led to outright rebellion. And when that happens, hear me, God moves from being patient to being angry. Numbers 11 verse 1, soon the people began to complain about their hardships and the Lord heard everything they said. Then the Lord's anger blazed against them and he sent a fire to rage among them and he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. It eventually led to them, all the adults, except for a very few, not being able to go to the promised land. In Deuteronomy 1, it says, When the Lord heard your complaining, he became very angry. So he solemnly swore 
Not one of you from this wicked generation will live to see the good land I swore to give your ancestors. You see, complaining is a spiritual problem. It means that we're not trusting God and His goodness in our life. It is showing that I'm not content with where I'm at. It's showing that I am not happy with what God is doing in my life. So how can I overcome this complaining spirit? Three things. One, remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has done some incredible things in your life, beginning with your salvation. I mean, for me, I mean, I could sit here for hours and hours and probably days and just talk to you about the goodness of God in my life. Being born in America, being born to, to Christian parents who loved Jesus and taught me to love Jesus. Being, being raised in a middle-class home where we didn't have a lot of things, but we didn't lack anything we needed. God's saving grace. God's provision for my family. God's sustaining love in the loss of a child. Over and over and over again, I could tell you of the goodness and the greatness and the mercy and the kindness of God. You see, remember the good things that God has done in your life. Second, develop an attitude of gratitude. Instead of complaining about what you don't have, give thanks for what you do have. And then finally, trust God day by day. You see, God promises to meet our needs, but He usually doesn't do it by filling our barns. He usually meets our needs by giving us our daily bread. But what we want is we want our barns filled, don't we? We want to know that everything's going to be okay. I've got news for you. None of us are promised tomorrow. You can take money and you can store it away, preparing for the future, preparing for your retirement, and the market can collapse and you can lose it all. You're not guaranteed a thing but your daily bread. If you're a follower of Jesus, he promises to give us our daily bread. He promises to meet uh, our daily needs. He, he doesn't promise to fill our barns up to overflowing. He doesn't promise that we're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, but he does promise that he's going to be with us. He promises that he'll meet our needs. And, and by the way, the only way that ever happens is through Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus is telling the story. He's telling the story of, of God providing manna to the people. And I want you to listen to what Jesus said as he's describing God providing this bread from heaven. Jesus says this. He says, I am the bread of life. He's telling them this story about God raining down bread from heaven for 40 years. And then he says, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. 
Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And as you read two verses down, you know what the people did? Listen. They grumbled. They complained. Jesus was standing before them saying, if you trust in me, if you believe in me, you will never go hungry. You will never go thirsty. I will give you bread that will last forever and ever and ever. And because he wasn't speaking in the terms that they wanted, the people grumbled. Can I tell you something? The only way you're going to ever get everything you want is when Jesus is all you want. And when Jesus is all you want, he will give you everything you need because all you need is Jesus. Doesn't matter what happens in this world. This world is going to pass away one day, someday, we don't know when, but it is going to be destroyed. This world will be destroyed. It's passing away. But for those of us who place our hope in Jesus, we have something far greater to look forward to. And it's not this world. It's a new, a better world where Jesus will rule and reign and we will rule with him. But if you're here and you're looking for the bread of this world like the Israelites were, you're going to be just like they were. You're going to die in the wilderness. And you're never going to discover the promised land. That would be horrible. Terrible. Quit complaining. Trust Jesus. Let him be all that you want and you will discover all that you need. Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? With your head bowed with your eyes closed, if you're here and you've never given your heart and life to Jesus, I'm here to tell you, you're never going to truly be able to overcome a complaining spirit apart from resting in Jesus day by day. And when you do, He'll change everything. So if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, trusting Him to save you, then I want to encourage you this morning to humble yourself. Surrender your life to him. Trust what he did on the cross to save you. Let him change you and make you new. If that's what you want to do, you can pray this prayer right now. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning humbly acknowledging I am a sinner. I've disobeyed you. I've lived life my way. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth. You died on the cross to pay for my sins. I'm trusting you to save me. I'm giving you my life. Come into my heart. Take control. Make me brand new, I pray. 